Welcome to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast with Lauren Curry of Curry Financial Group Limited. In this podcast, we are focused on helping businesses set up and manage their group benefit plan to protect and assist their most valuable assets. Join us on this journey where Lauren explores ways to help you develop effective and cost-efficient strategies for your business. Now on to the show. Hello and welcome to the Benefits of Knowledge with Lauren Curry. Good morning, Lauren. How are you? I'm doing great, Eric. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. We got to spend a little time before we started the recording kind of talking with our guest, and, and I, I'm so excited that you have brought him on the show. I'm gonna you've given me the honor of reading his bio. Your guest today is Martin Chung, and Martin Chung is Assistant Vice President of Strategic Health Management at Equitable Life of Canada. And I know that Martin will try to provide practical insights today, given his current role in group benefits at Equitable Life and being a pharmacist his past roles in managing a chain of pharmacies, working at a major drug company and at a group consulting firm. So quite the bio here, Lorne. Why'd you bring Martin on the show today? Well, there's always a lot of questions about pharmaceuticals, the the drug landscape, stuff like that. And Martin, as you can tell, has a, a wealth of knowledge behind him. He's had so many different roles in the industry. I just felt as I like dealing with specialists and, and Martin's a pharmacist, he's a specialist in this stuff. Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm here to learn. This is very exciting. I'm sure I'm going to learn more. I, every time I talk to Martin, I learn something. So Martin, I just want to welcome you to the podcast and thanks very much for joining us. Well, thanks for the opportunity, Lauren, and, and glad to exchange some knowledge and discussion with you on what's becoming an increasingly important topic. Yeah, well, there is. As I see you every year at your road shows. Martin is always the, the main speaker uh, for Equitable Life, and I generally drive to Ottawa every year just to, to listen to him. I'm sure our, our listeners will uh, enjoy this. We've got a bunch of questions here, Martin, but before we get into that, really, as questions, maybe you can just tell us what's going on, what matters in the drug world these days. There's always something new going on. Absolutely. And, and let me just start with just a, a, a brief uh, disclaimer in terms of the nature and scope of what I'll be covering today. This is, of course, intended to be an educational podcast. So the things I'll be commenting on in terms of general or specific trends are designed to give people some consideration on what they may or may not wish to do around their drug plan. However, at the end of the day, every listener should consult uh, with their advisor to determine the plan design options that specifically and best meets their needs and the needs of their organization and their plan members. So with that, let me answer your first question in terms of what's the, what do things look like at 30,000 feet or so? Well, drug, the drug world, first of all, let me say just keeps getting more complex. And that's partly because of the volume of drugs on the market, the amount of drugs and types of drugs that keep coming onto the market. But if I look specifically at the last five years, because we've had some very notable changes, one of the ways, as you learned, that I like to look at things is is to try to bucket this very complex drug world into a few simple practical buckets. I begin with simply saying, okay, we have bucket one, which is all the regular drugs. So... (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it, Lauren, to think that today a regular drug is defined as any drug that's up to about $10,000 in annual cost. I don't know about you. I'm not sure who's younger, who's older. But when I came out of uh, pharmacy school, there was hardly any drug that was even over 1000 bucks a year. And here we are, where a regular drug is now defined as being up to about ten grand a year. It's really phenomenal. It really is. And the second bucket is simply 
the high cost. Some call specialty drugs, but I just call them high cost drugs, which are typically ten thousand dollars or more per year. So those are the two buckets, and if I may, I'll sort of give you a view of what's going on in the world based on、uh, segmenting it in that way. Well, we have、uh, in Canada technically over thirty thousand what we call DINs. Every drug and every version of a drug has a specific ID number called a DIN, a drug identification number. So the galaxy of The drug, the drug galaxy, is composed of over thirty thousand dens. Now, no employer drug plan covers every single one of these. The typical open plan that doesn't have a lot of controls will typically cover around half of them, fifteen thousand. The high cost drugs, the ones that are over ten grand, make up a very small sliver of this galaxy of drugs. However, we are now at a point. Where this sliver of drugs constitutes, on average, overall about twenty-five to thirty percent of total drug spend amongst employers. Put another way, they constitute less than one percent of claims, and they make up well under one percent of claimants. But because they are so expensive, and because there are so many of them, overall twenty-five thirty percent of total spend. Now that also means that over 99% of the drugs that might be covered on a typical drug plan are not high-cost specialty drugs. They're regular drugs. Now, within this big bucket of regular drugs, one of the most concerning trends, for sure, is the fact that more and more every year of these regular drugs are made up of what I call higher-cost. Regular drugs, drugs that are thousands of dollars a year, not over ten thousand, but thousands of dollars.、It、could be two, three, four, five、uh, thousand or more per year. And whether they're drugs for diabetes, which is a very common disease, or even drugs for cholesterol, we now have drugs for migraine, drugs for cholesterol, which can easily be five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars per year. So, Lauren, at, at a high level, when I look at those two. Overarching buckets. That's what's going on, right? Well, that's it. Is pretty amazing. You th- you think? I think back when my kids were young and they had an ear infection or something. I think it was amoxicillin, if I'm not mistaken. And I think that the, the、uh, dispensing fee cost more than the actual drug did, right? <laughs> so to think that we have what we call regular drugs actually costing thousands of dollars now, it, it is really amazing. Just kind of back up your your thought about the thirty percent. I just did this morning actually a renewal with one of my clients before we started, and the one drug on the program is twenty five percent of the entire program's drug expense. There you there you go with the dollars. Well, if I if I may just to add a bit of color to what you just said and, and what I said earlier, I think there's another aspect to what's going on in the drug world that is so important for for employers to know. And arguably, plan members so that they can be responsible participants of of group benefit drug plans. One of the the big cautions I always try to give、uh, everybody is in many statistical aspects of life, looking at general trends, general percentages, is dangerous at the best of times, isn't it? Yes. And it certainly applies to the drug world. What do I mean by that? As an example. Okay, I just shared that 
roughly 25-30% of the total drug spend amongst employers are for high-cost drugs. But if I may, Lauren, you know, can I just dig a little bit deeper under the story behind the story so that your audience and listeners can maybe sort of relate to why these trends potentially matter to them? Certainly. First of all, there's basically three sort of uh, groupings or buckets of employers in Canada. The vast, vast majority are small, mid-sized groups, groups that may have 10 employees or may have up to three, four, 500 employees. But especially employers who are around 100 employees, give or take, make up a huge percentage of employers in Canada. Do we have some employers in Canada that have 5, 10, 50, 100,000 employees? Absolutely. But they are obviously outliers in terms of there aren't very many of them. The averages I shared with you become more expected and typical the larger of an employer you are. But you, I suspect, know very well, just look at the example you just gave, right? Don't you find that when you start looking at the majority of employers, which are again, small, mid-sized, these averages don't mean much in the sense that you can have such extreme volatility, one employer to another. Heck, two employers in the same industry, in the same city, can have huge differences because if you are, for example, an employer with 50 employees or 100 employees, just one person on a $100,000 drug a year can potentially be a game changer, right, Lauren? Definitely. So do you, do you see some of this volatility that I speak of? These overall averages sound, sound sort of okay, lovely, maybe not so bad. I'm certainly not suggesting in any manner that the drug world sky is, is falling down. But do you know what I mean? Like, don't you see in your book of business so much volatility amongst different employers who are of that sort of 20, 50, 100, 200 employees? Yes. So we, the, again, just referring back to this morning's meeting, that particular client, we actually had two high dollar, high cost drugs, so above $10,000 on their plan last year. So we had gone several years. This is an ASO program. There's 50 some employees there. It had run excellent. We had a surplus built up and boom, last year we get hit two drugs used up our surplus. Now, fortunately, both of those drugs have disappeared from the DIN reports that we ran. Now we're hoping that, guess what? They've had their their fill of or, or their share of these high dollar drugs and, and now hopefully we'll have a swing of a few years. Maybe they don't have any, but that's, that's exactly. You go from zero high dollar to like 60, 70, 80, hundreds of thousands. It's, it's unbelievable and it, it makes a huge difference to those small employers. Well, and I think because of this volatility, there's two things that practically speaking matter. Number one, this volatility or potential volatility or those who have already experienced like some of your clients already, some of this extreme volatility, it matters to the extent that they view it as an issue. And what I mean by that, Lauren, is obviously we, we should not and cannot ever look at the drug landscape strictly through the through the guise of dollars and cents, right? Right. I mean, some of these drugs are game changers. Some of these drugs can, can materially impact one's life, one's quality of life, one's even potential uh, survivability of certain diseases. These drugs play a role. Now, of course, as you, one of the challenges is that a lot of employers sometimes uh, aren't aware that when Health Canada approves a drug, 
yes, it certainly means that it's it's sort of passed a, a variety of rigorous things that they have in place in terms of safety and 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 clinical effectiveness and things of that nature. But they do not, in general, for the vast majority of drugs, take into account what the cost of the thing is. In other words, if there's one drug that's a dollar and another drug that's ten dollars, but they both are equally effective, equally safe. They, you know, they're they're both approved by Health Canada. However, that ten dollar drug may not be any more safe or effective than the one dollar drug. So it begs the question: Should employers just blindly cover the ten dollar and the one dollar drug if, for the majority of people, they're equally safe and effective? So perhaps we'll have time to talk about that in more detail in a moment. But I think the other way that will really help employers is that they need to understand probability. I would have never thought five years ago that we'd now be at a point. So if I look at 2020, where you know, do, do employers know that if you have 100 employees, which in reality means that you probably have 250 approximately plan members because there's spouses and there's dependents, right? Yes. So if you have 100 employees, your probability of having one of these $10,000 plus drugs is now statistical probability-wise. Close to 100%. Right. And in terms of a probability of having one of these higher cost regular drugs, it, it is absolutely 100% under the assumption you have a typical open drug plan. Isn't that something, eh, Lauren? I mean, yeah. There was a time when that probability of a high cost drug seven, eight years ago was like five percent. Yeah, it was you know? really unusual to to see them on the plans, and and I've been doing this for 25 years. Seeing those trends over that time period is just Now they don't shock me. It's like, oh, here's another one, <laughs> right?、Uh, where before it was, oh, oh my, right. So there's there's a bit more of a shock factor, and perhaps more commonly occurring. Now, back to, does this really matter to an employer? Well, of course, that depends on what their objectives are in terms of providing group benefits and what their view is on affordability.、And、what I mean is, is, is you have a big mix of all kinds of different clients, Lauren. And some view benefit truly as something that must be competitive, that must be as 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 generous as possible for one reason or another, or they just believe they should provide generous benefits. Then you have a growing number of employers who are truly struggling with the affordability of group benefits, and drugs typically make up around sixty sixty five percent of of health benefits spend. So that's an area that some may choose to do. Some more controls, or, or or not be as generous, so to speak. Don't you find that, Lauren, that you now have such a mix of clients in terms of what they are trying to achieve and what they view that they can afford? Yeah, and that's when we start talking to someone in regards to what it is their goals are for their program. Those things come up, and and you're exactly right. Some are what we need to offer, you know, the best plan possible because it's it's how we find and and retain those really good employees. That's what we use this stuff for. There's others that you know what, yeah, we need to do this, but on the other hand, we have a very specific budget that we have to stay within. So the plan designs are structured around what those employers want to or can actually afford. For me, what the real takeaway of of what we've discussed so far is that it's always mattered, but it's never mattered more, in my view, that employers are partnering with the right advisor so that that advisor can tailor and understand what that 
employer's objective is and then basically match the right group benefit design or the right drug plan design depending on what that employer employer's objectives are but as you know, it also matters you know what carrier what insurer they're with because different insurers nowadays have so much differences in drug plan control some have less some have more some mandated as a default program some stick to voluntary options so i i think advisors more than ever play such a critical role in matching the right programs the right provider partners and frankly just strategically thinking through managing current and future risk and of course i would imagine that's one of the reasons why you're so excited despite 25 years already, eh, Lauren? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> to, to, be, to be in the business you're in because it keeps evolving. And, and I always say, you've heard me say this many times before, the trick on such a complex topic, which is group benefits and, and certainly the drug world, is we have to work together as insurers and advisors to figure out some way to constantly practically simplify the complex on behalf of employers and frankly on behalf of plan members so that they understand what they can and cannot access and why exactly communication with those plan members is paramount and i every chance i get an opportunity to talk to the employees at our, our clients places of business i try and do business with anybody i can that you know that are clients so whenever i get that opportunity i ask the employees. Maybe you know, I'm getting a load of wood delivered or, or whatever the case might be. I try and ask them, hey, how's your plan? Does this work? Or what do you, you know, just feedback, right? And then that gives me an opportunity to, because everybody wants more in their plan. <laughs> that, that's standard. But once you have the opportunity away from a structured situation, meeting or something like that, to just have a conversation with someone, you can explain that this is how plan designs are developed. Then they get it, right? They understand. I mean, People are smart, so I take the advantage well, that's, of that. That's the secret, isn't it? Practical knowledge exchange, and, and, and hopefully, to some extent, this podcast achieves that. Lauren, I imagine you probably have a few uh, more specific questions. Feel free to ask some of those if you like. We got the two different buckets of drugs, so kind of regular drug trends. So are we seeing prices increase? I know with generics, of course, we had kind of what we call the, the, the generic holiday there or whatever, because we had reduction in costs because there were so many generics come on the thing. And then the, the second half of that would be the, the specialty drugs, the high, high cost ones. How are we managing those? And specifically there, do the different pharmacies have different markups? Are they controlled? Or can you maybe explain that a little bit? Okay. Well, there's a few layers to that question. So let me see if I can sequence the unpacking in, a, in, in, in hopefully a, a practical way. Let me start with high-cost drugs and, and in general, how they're being managed in terms of eligibility, and then I'll get to some of your pricing questions, okay? Okay. So in terms of eligibility, there was a time years ago where the vast majority of Canadian employers would have what, what I call a quote-unquote open drug plan. and the historical definition of an open drug plan is that it sort of covers everything, but it excludes certain things. Typically, if it's an over-the-counter drug, you know, a drug that doesn't legally need a prescription, not covered, except for certain drugs that are required, like insulin. 
you know, a lot of people forget that insulin does not require prescription. But do you know of any drug plan that doesn't cover? Of course not, because it is life essential for those who need it. And of course, there's you know some open plans may cover drugs for fertility or weight loss, and some may not. But in general, they cover the majority of legal prescription requiring drugs. Well, that's all changed over the last five years, especially when it comes to high cost drugs. Because back to my $10 and $1 analogy, so most progressive insurers nowadays for any high cost drug or for most of them, they will do some sort of evaluation. In other words, the days of just automatically covering a $100,000 drug for amongst most insurers, it simply doesn't happen anymore. And I don't think, I don't know what you think, Lauren, I don't think any employer that's been around for a while who might have picked an open drug plan 20 years ago made that decision 20 years ago, knowing that, oh, if at some point in a few years, if a $50,000 drug comes to the market, but it doesn't really have really profound, better effectiveness, it's just a lot more expensive, I'm absolutely happy as an employer to automatically have that covered. Do you have any clients who, if you ask them that question, they're okay with that? Right. I don't think so. <laughs> You know, but but that's the way things were back then. There was no such thing as drugs of that price point 15, 20 years ago, or very rarely. But today, it's fairly common. So again, from, from an eligibility standpoint, most progressive insurers have some degree of internal or, or, or some partnership with somebody to evaluate certain high-cost drugs or all high-cost drugs. For example, in our case, we evaluate all high-cost drugs, especially the new ones that come to market, just to make sure that there is reasonable value in covering a much more expensive drugs for a condition which may have many other options for treatment. So that's a, a responsible due diligence or duty of care that I think insurers really have to do, and fortunately, most do. Now, in terms of the pricing of these drugs. Well, if we talk, if we stick with the, the bucket of high cost uh, specialty drugs, there's been a bit of an evolution where compared to five years ago, or certainly 10 years ago, it is now common for, for most insurers to have some sort of specialty drug preferred pharmacy network of some kind premised on, we really would like you plan members to use certain pharmacies if possible. And that may be partly because there's certain negotiated pricing or lower markup, as an example, if one goes to certain pharmacies. I'm sure you would agree, Lauren, if, if a drug is 50 grand a year, whether the dispensing fee is $11.99 or $9.99 percentage-wise is, is a rather moot point, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> In fact, it's frankly, all practically speaking, it's an irrelevant point. However, the markup certainly matters. And this is where certain partnerships between organizations, typically insurers, but sometimes there's even some really large employers who do a direct partnership with a, a pharmacy chain. So there's many permutations, many ways it's structured, but the intention is to reduce some of the, to create a financial benefit. And of course the pharmacy benefits because they're getting a greater volume of, of business. Now, in some cases, it's also premised on a patient care model where certain things are arranged that, that pharmacy 
the pharmacy partners will provide, which may or may not be provided normally by some pharmacies. But at the end of the day, it's it's a combination of price and service and patient care that's involved in these. From a financial standpoint, when you start getting into drugs of 10, 20, 50, and, and we now have a gene therapy drug in Canada on the market that's $5 million, albeit it's a one-time treatment, you can imagine even a few percent or a lot percent lower markup actually in absolute terms matters once you start getting into those sort of price points, right? Yeah, 1% is big on $5 million. One of the questions I really kind of wanted to make sure we fit in today was on the pricing of drugs. Do different places charge different amounts? Uh, a lot of people talk about this stuff, but you're the pharmacist. How about you explain how these things actually work? Well, I think to be specific, let's narrow in on, on the price that the pharmacy charges or submits to the drug plan, if that's okay. There's so many layers involved in pricing of drugs in Canada, right? Right. But th that's a big part of it and a topic that often comes up. It varies tremendously by, first of all, by province. And why do I say by province versus by saying by pharmacy? Because uh, a lot of people are not aware that all kinds of uh, pricing controls exist, but they def but they they vary wildly, one province to another. Now, I often get asked, "Well, look, at the end of the day, can pharmacies submit a claim and charge whatever they want?" In most provinces, frankly, the answer is yes. Now, however, that does not mean that's what they will get paid because every insurer, and it's province specific, typically will have certain limits on how much a pharmacy can charge for a drug, especially as it pertains to the markup and sometimes even to the amount of the dispensing fee that, that will be paid. So these are, as long as an employer has a pay direct drug plan, one can certainly be reassured that irrespective of what a pharmacy submits. In fact, Lauren, sometimes what a lot of people don't know is that in the absence of a pay direct drug plan, there's so many controls that aren't possible, real-time controls when a claim is submitted and how the system handles it. So pay that drug plan matters in the sense of pricing controls. Pharmacies do have different pricing depending on, sometimes depending on certain drugs, obviously depending on location and so on in terms of the markup and that. But for the most part, if you, it's one of the things that good advisors always sort of check, hey, if you're with, if I have a client with insurer X, do you have appropriate price limits in place? And most do, but they're not all the same, Lauren. So sometimes it matters to know how different they are. In general, there are, there are not huge differences. Now, the other question I often get is, well, that's only one part of the price at the pharmacy. How about the professional fee or the dispensing fee? Exactly. Well, they can, of course, everyone knows they can vary all over the place in every province because you have certain big box pharmacies that have a much lower fee than the others. Now, there was a time when I would argue that is quite material. But let me give you an example. It matters only to the extent that it matters. So you gave an example earlier of a client of yours that has a big chunk of their spend total drug spend being linked to a few high-cost drugs, right? Yes. Well, for that client, if they go aggressive trying to make or encourage people use a 
certain pharmacy that may be a lower fee. Will they benefit to some degree? Yes. Will they likely benefit in a material way when the bulk of their drug spend is associated with a few very high-cost drugs? The answer is no. So you run the potential of upsetting a whack of plan members with very limited or low net financial benefit, right? So at the end of the day, the relevance these days of dispensing fee controls or encouraging people to use a lower fee pharmacy matters to the extent of how much it may actually benefit or impact the total drug plan spent. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Now, if you happen to be some employer where you don't have a single high cost drug claimant, everyone's on a really inexpensive generic drug, <laughs> then, then yes, the fee makes up a fair uh, percent. I mean, did you know, for example, today, compared to years ago, today of the total drug spend, on average, 20% is made up by the fee. That's not 50%, right? Right. Only 20% of the average prescription is made up by the fee, overall average. Right. But back to my overall average, you got to be careful because again, that client that you have that spends the bulk of their money on high cost drugs, even if they move, figure out a way to pay no fees of any kind, it still wouldn't save them much money, relatively speaking, would it? Exactly. You got a $40,000 drug and whether you're dispensing fees, $5 or $10, it, it's almost irrelevant, right? Exactly. Thank you so much, Martin, for sharing your, your knowledge and, and helping us understand some of this drug landscape. We didn't get through all of our questions, but maybe that opens the door that we could maybe have you back at another time. Well, thanks again for the opportunity. Big topic, lots of moving parts, but hopefully there was a few nuggets that we discussed and shared today that will encourage people to ask more questions and, and perhaps you'll get asked a lot more questions as a follow-up. So thanks again. It was a real pleasure to be a part of this conversation, Lauren. All right. Thank you, Martin. As always, if people do have questions, they can always email me at lorne at currayfinancialgroup.com. Or you could always go to our website and look us up that way, currayfinancialgroup.com. Eric, with that, I'll turn it back over to you. Guys, this was fantastic. I mean, there, there's so much information. And I like the fact that, Martin, one of the things that you mentioned was this is why people use an advisor, need an advisor that can help navigate all this because it's it's sounds extremely complicated and that's why we need to lean on the pros that that do this for a living and and spend their life's blood really honing their craft which martin i know you do and lauren obviously you do so i encourage the audience if you do have questions reach out to lauren as a last note martin thank you so much for being on the show and lauren of course thank you for bringing him on the show to educate us all i appreciate it very much and of course our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the benefits of knowledge podcast with lauren curry of curry financial group if you have not subscribed to the podcast yet please click the subscribe now button below this way when lauren comes out with a new podcast it'll show up directly on your listening device this makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Curry Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.